0: Hello and welcome to episode 76 of the InSquash podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Gibson. Today we have the mental coach to Miguel Rodriguez, amongst others, uh, Max Withers. Now, Max uh, himself was a great uh, Canadian player, uh, top junior Canadian national champion as a junior, uh, top five uh, senior level player uh, back in the mid to late 80s. Uh, he went on to have a, have a very good uh playing career, I think he played professionally for a few years uh, uh, as well in the early 90s, late 80s. Um, and then um, also for, all, for any of you who know Max, he's a, he's a different cat, he's a very, uh, in a very good way. He has this entrepreneurial uh, spirit, uh, he's always had that even back when he was uh, uh, quite young actually. And uh, he's taken that to, uh, to a few different places, but uh, these days, uh, famously, he's the, the mental coach to uh, Miguel Rodriguez, amongst others. I think he works with, uh, with a few squash players, but uh, we've seen the rise of Miguel, and he talks about uh, how the two of them uh, formed a relationship uh, when, uh, when uh, Max uh, wound up in Colombia and Cartagena. And um, he talks about the, the British Open run that uh, we all watched, uh, uh, the unbelievable British Open win for Miguel last year. And uh, a lot of that uh, has to do with uh, the, the few years dating back to when, when uh, Miguel and, uh, and Max started working together on the mental aspect of the game. He takes us through all of that and uh, some really good stuff here. Uh, about uh, how they made things work and perhaps how we can make things work in our own uh, mental game. And uh, Max also, uh, we, we go on to talk quite a bit about the, the Olympic bid. He has some, uh, some interesting thoughts uh, on that and he looks back at, uh, I believe it was the 2012, uh, one of the first uh, Olympic uh, bids that uh, were were, fought, were squashed, didn't quite uh, uh, meet the standard. Uh, he has some, some ideas in terms of... Uh, Maybe where things went wrong. Obviously, hindsight in these cases is uh, is always 2020. Uh, but um, but uh, we need to try to figure this out. And uh, he has some ideas on that. So I know you're going to enjoy this. The mental uh, approach to the game, and also a few other uh, great tidbits as well. A b- bit of a backstory on uh, Max Withers as a player, and uh, you know the uh, the Olympic bid. A few uh, interesting thoughts as well. So enjoy this one. Max Withers, episode 76. Uh, well, today uh, on episode 76, we have uh, the mental coach uh, famously for uh, for Miguel Rodriguez, but also he's made a name for himself in the squash game well before that as a player Uh Top junior and uh, senior level player in Canada, and play professionally for a short bit. Uh, he's also got several entrepreneurial ventures ongoing, which uh, uh, we'll get into a little bit at the end of the interview. Uh, Max Withers, uh, Max, great to, to have you on, and uh, good to hear your voice.
1: Thanks, Jerry. Thanks for having me. Uh, this is a great forum. Uh, I really appreciate um, you inviting me to to share what I what I know uh, about this great game of ours, and um, hopefully. Some people will uh, will find some benefits from it.
0: Absolutely. Well, uh, once one guy certainly has, uh, amongst others. So, uh, Miguel Rodriguez, uh, you've made a name for yourself uh, globally, uh, I think, as his mental coach. But uh, you've been playing the game at a high level uh, yourself, uh, both as a as a top junior and senior player in Canada, and a bit professionally. Um, tell us a little bit about your your background as a player. Uh, growing up mostly uh, in your junior years uh, in Canada.
1: Sure. So I actually, I, I learned squash in the Bahamas. That's, that's where I grew up. I I actually got to Canada when I was 14 and uh, I, I decided that, you know, I used to actually play a lot of tennis in the Bahamas and obviously it was a bit cold outside. So I, I ventured inside and and started getting lessons um, in Toronto. Uh, That's where I was based uh, for for all of my junior years. Mm
0: -hmm. So,
1: that, that's that's yeah, where I've been,
0: been getting lessons from a guy, probably Goodfellow, wouldn't you?
1: Um, I I actually never got coached by by Dennis Goodfellow. Okay. Um, when I got to Canada, I I played at a club which which doesn't exist anymore called the Squash Academy, which is down on Queen and Young Street. I think mm-hmm. um I think it's an office building now. <laughs> 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 yeah. oddly enough. But um, a fellow by the name of Terry Dietrich and the owner of the club at the time was. Uh, Uh, Bill McDonnell and his partner um, was uh, was Clive Caldwell, who's who's the owner of the Cambridge club Mm -hmm. so and and um, so those were those were the guys back then that uh, that I started getting coaching from most mostly Billy McDonnell I mean he he was he was drafted in the NHL he was a very talented uh, athlete himself Mm -hmm. Um, then ventured into the squash business and uh, love that guy he's I mean he was it was amazing. He introduced me to, to all the greats there. Um, Wayne Gretzky one time came and practiced one afternoon with Sharif Khan. And I was, you know, privileged to be standing around, you know, watching those guys at a very <laughs> wow. early age. Yeah. So it was, <laughs> uh, yeah. So it was, it was, it was back in those days that, um, that I got uh, my first bit of coaching with, with those guys. Um, Gordie Anderson, I think if you, know, you guys know Gordy yeah. Anderson, uh, who started, um, uh, this, this, well, one of the squash revelations in, in the States with, with the, the court building, I um, forget the name of his company, but he, he actually ended up going down to Buffalo and uh, became very well known in the, uh, in the squash conversion business um, and, and other, other types of court manufacturing throughout the United States. So those are my first real mentors in, in the game.
0: Right now, you you would have uh, back then, and as a as senior player, uh, you would have competed against the likes of uh, Gary Wait, uh, Jamie Crombie, Saber Saber Butt, Bobby uh, Ballinger, Gene Turk, even uh, the great Steve Lawton, and the list goes on. Um, so those days were obviously quite competitive and, and quite an eclectic group uh, of guys that you had been uh, competing against. So what what do you uh, what do you remember about those days and? competing against the, the likes of uh, those, uh, those great Canadian names there? Right. So I actually won the Canadian Junior Championships in
1: 1983. So in that, in that tournament, I actually beat Gary Waite in the semifinals and a guy by the name of Bruce Bicknell from Jamaica, who had beaten Jamie Crombie right. in the semifinals. I beat uh, Bruce uh, 3-2. That's a blast Um, from
0: the past. I haven't heard that name for a while.
1: (laughs) Bruce is a great guy, a great friend of mine as well. Still lives down in Jamaica. Unfortunately, one of the greatest talents that never saw the pro tour, Um, still lives down in Jamaica and and runs his family's business. Uh, But yeah, so back in the (laughs) junior days, uh, you know, I was beating all these guys and then I I, I went to England, um, trained with uh, Hanger and Ramit. and I came back and I I was introduced to... um, well, girls.. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I, I must be honest, with, with everyone, it was, it was a huge distraction, and, and uh, I think the other guys <laughs> caught up. Um, but uh, you know, I learned a lot. I, I, those are some of the best, most fun days, you know on the tour in Canada, in Canada and uh, you know, it, like, as you said, the group of guys so eclectic uh, from all over the world, and, and also mm-hmm. Roy Ollier. Roy Haller,
0: definitely. I, I mean, I, I left out a, a whole bunch of names, but it just seemed like uh, there were so many back then. Now, of those guys. I mean, who, which guy? Sort of, uh, do you have uh, the best memories of uh, playing against and uh, sort of, uh, sort of classic matches? I mean, I, I, could imagine you, you and Lawton, if you, if you ever uh, played each other, uh, that would have been a, a bit of a clash. And then you've got uh, a guy like Saber, who was just so uh, professional, and went about it. Uh, that way uh, another another sort of uh, uh, difference in in, uh, in personalities there
1: yes sabre sabre was a few years younger than i uh, i was in and um, but we we became great friends when we actually started touring um on the first tour uh, first first ps8 tours back in uh, i think 89 90 and the next uh, five or six years so we hung out quite a lot we trained a lot um i had great matches as you mentioned with steve lawton with we Totally opposite. I mean, he was so charismatic, and <laughs> yeah. I, was, I was the complete opposite. <laughs> right. I was I was pretty disciplined. Well, yeah. I mean,
0: I, I I wouldn't sell yourself short there. I mean, you you were you had I mean, you may not have been the most boisterous guy on the court, but you definitely had a had a stylish uh, approach to the game, like uh, more like uh, sort of like Steve in his way.
1: Yeah, it was. Steve was very outspoken, and, and um, we we still we still um, connect on Facebook once in a while and and, and chat and, and uh, remember those great days. We I think one of the one of the best matches I ever had with it with him was uh, the Canadian Nationals. I think it was thirty over thirty and over. Uh, it was a semifinals, but definitely it was one of the best matches. I won in five, but it was a it was a doozy. It was it was five games and. Every, every point if you know steve um was an interesting was an interesting uh yeah. collision of, of characters that's for sure
0: collision of characters and collision of uh, of bodies i'm sure with that wide stance that he liked to take on, off on the tee yeah he was
1: but he was a great guy off the court all these oh, guys are yeah. great great fun off the court on the court we were complete enemies but uh as it, it probably still is today um for the most part but uh on the court. Yeah. He was, he, he was an animal. Um, and he was <laughs> very, ta- very, very talented. I mean, I, I really admired right. some of these guys. Amazing talent.
0: Yeah. A lot of talent there. And, and Steve had, uh, had a very talented, uh, you know, he, he could do just about anything with the ball. there. there.
1: Yeah. To- totally agree. Um, Steve, uh, I think Steve moved back to eventually to Australia. Uh, I'm not sure if he's still playing squash at all, but, um, so so many talented guys came to canada in in those years and the roy as i mentioned was was another person that i looked up to um he was yeah. number 1 in canada for many years um i actually got to number 3 in canada uh behind behind uh, gary Waite and Saber Butt. Um, right um and that, they, that was they they my, hadn't
0: discovered girls the way you had though
1: <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not, but uh, they, 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 were qu- they were quite disciplined. I mean, I, I, yeah. I, didn't, have oh, the, yeah. I didn't have the talent that they, they, they did. I, I was, uh, you know, one of, one of the other guys that I got trained by was a guy by the name of Murray Lilly.
0: Uh, right. from New Zealand.
1: Um I think he got...
0: I remember I he had the sign- one of the signature Black Knight rackets back in the day, didn't
1: he? Yeah, that's right. He was one of the first uh, guys that, uh, that Black Knight signed up. Um, but he, was, he was really famous at the time for his volleys and, and attacking both. Um, yeah. And i think that 's where I spent a lot of time with him uh during a few years um and and uh his fitness and i think he actually held the world's the world's record for the longest match um i think it was against jeff hunt Ooh, and i think okay. it was only three three games to one um but it was at the time it was like i think it was an hour and forty five minutes at the time and that that was i think the longest match that that was standing back in those days. So, yeah. and
0: they they were traditional uh, uh, matches back then, weren't they? They weren't quick, short. Uh, I mean, still, you get you get a lot of traditional squash nowadays, but nothing like what it was uh, back then.
1: Yeah, it was it was very traditional. I mean, Hunt and and, uh, and Lily. I mean, they both famous for their fitness, and I mean, it took took a took a lot of work. Um, they didn't do very much with the ball. wasn't very it was very fancy, like, uh, you know, like the Jonathan Powers that came later and um, and those kind of guys. But uh, definitely, you know, if you understand the game, so something that you can really appreciate at the time.
0: Absolutely. Now, uh, fast forward. Uh, well, I guess not fast forward because we're going to go back a little bit, I think, talking about this part. But uh, I remember back... Uh, Uh, When I was a junior, and and, and I I know I I spent, uh, I think it was a winter, uh, a few weeks, uh, you you, uh, coached me for a little bit there. But shortly after, before that, I remember the Jahangir Khan-Ramit Khan squash camp. Uh, And I I got, I think I was invited to to join that camp. And you were were there along with uh, Jahangir and uh, Ramit as one of their assistants, I think. So uh, that pairing is obviously the greatest player-coach pairing in, in the history of the game. Uh, and you were somehow uh, part part of that. So, how how did that relationship uh, with Ramit and J.K. Uh, develop for you uh, back then?
1: Right. So, what happened was um, in in January of 1983, um, I was looking for a sponsor actually, and, and Ascot at the time was, I think, just going under. know anyway, they 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 uh, they weren't able to support um, a sponsorship and. I was playing at the time at a club called the Valhalla Squash Club run by a great guy that yeah. really did amazing things for squash in Canada by the name of Murray Christensen. And so, you know, I was, I was practicing one day and Murray came up to me and said, hey, you want to you have a practice with Jahangir Khan? So I was like, well, <laughs> of course, I was like just a little, you know, a young guy going, here's the world champion, you know, in my backyard. And, here you know, I'm being invited to play with these guys. Uh, albeit as, as a as a practice match, and Jahangir was actually there um, to play a, a, an invitational event called the in Cup. Um, mm. So, what the and Cup? That hardball, was, was, wasn't it? Yeah. So back then it was hardball. So they took the top four softball guys and top four hardball guys. They did a round robin, um, and Jahangir was there to practice that tournament. And uh, I was the only one that played any hardball at the club, so. They they invited me to to, to uh, have a hit. Um, I took a game off uh, off Johango that day, and, and Ramat and, and his business manager Ron Morton uh, was was upstairs watching along with Murray Christian, and they were like, "Hey, this guy's you know, he's pretty decent." I, I remember taking the game off. And I, I lost at I think it was two one, and then I I had to go pick my mom up, so I said, like, "Hey guys, I, you know I gotta go." But um, I guess that impressed them enough to to give me a sponsorship. So,
0: okay, so I'm I had the sponsorship.
1: And that was unsquashable. Yeah. yeah. So Ramit and Jahangir came out with this line way, way back then. And, um, and Ron Morton was the manager and distributor for the brand uh, across Canada and North America. So they gave me a full sponsorship, uh, sent me to, um, sent me to London after I won the Canadian juniors in, in May of that year. And, and, uh, by the beginning of November, I was sitting in front of, um, Ramit, uh, in a three hour class, <laughs> learning all the stuff that uh, <laughs> that he taught Jahangir. yeah um, so that's that's how I got connected with him and and uh, had signed a five year contract with Rabbit and and part of that contract involved um, squash camps and so forth, which uh, which you spoke about earlier
0: yeah, yeah, so, I guess uh, that would have been back uh, during the the green and black the iconic uh, green and black uh, unsquashable racket uh, that uh, that Jahangir was using at at the time or, or would that have been Closer to the graphite uh, racket era.
1: Yeah, so that that was in 1983, and right. we, were, we were all we were all still using um, basic graphite rackets, but not not the carbon fiber ones. That uh, that those were. That was a bit cheeky
0: ra- back then, as well, if memory serves.
1: <laughs> so yeah, so <laughs> the first the first rackets that came came across from Taiwan was back in 1985, and that's when I actually took the first um, first rackets over to Jahangir. Um, before he before he started playing with the open throat uh, uh, racket that um, that's that he's famous for, so that, yeah, so that that was a, that was well that was a long time ago. Just jumped uh, my memory there, right? But those those were great days. That's you know that was the development of the of the from the wooden rackets and the carbon reinforced plywood rackets and then onto the to the graphite rackets that we have today.
0: Now, what? Uh, just I mean, Ramit obviously and J.K. I mean, that relationship, uh, player-coach relationship, uh, speaks for itself. What uh, did you grasp from Ramit that might have been sort of the spe- What what special sort of trait did he have uh, that you that you recognized, or even even in hindsight recognized now uh, that that brought that relationship to such a such a level. Obviously, JK was a talented player, but uh, Ramit brought the best out of him.
1: Yeah, so, you know, since I've been studying this neuroscience and, and, and the development of the mindset of, of a squash player, um, I, I've had a lot of reflection on on what happened back then. And, and I think one of the, one of the primary, uh, I think, things that, that Ramit was really good at was his communication skills um, with Jahangir. Um, He he was able to, as you mentioned, bring the best out of him, but he was able to communicate that at a level where obviously no one else had had been able to do before. Um, You know, it was a, it was a very powerful, it was a very powerful time of, of uh, Jahangir's uh, life where, when I say powerful, I mean, the the time of his life was, was, was very intricate and, and, uh, you know, his brother had just died. So he had a lot of reasons as to why he would you know become the world champion and and uh, Rama just happened to be at the right place at the right time um, with the right right environment in Wembley in london and uh, and he was able to to train uh, Jahangir in such a way i mean it was it was a full i think he was one of the first full time professional if not squash squash players but but uh, athletes uh, at that time of the of the circuit, because before that i think i mean I think jeff hunt and, and jonah barrington were were pretty much full time um but he he was doing it at an, an incredible with an incredible schedule from no, well he, he was playing point.
0: two tours simultaneously
1: yeah, i mean Rabbit got up to i think top sixteen in the world as well so he he was a he was a pretty decent uh, professional player so he understood the tour he understood. Uh, the, the type of uh, trading that was going to be involved he, he understood the mindset um, and i 've spoken to Ramit in the last couple of years about all the mindset stuff um, and and uh, he 's he's, he's very up to par with, uh, with, with those sort of um, ideas and way back then i mean we 're talking 1980, uh, 1981, uh when Jahangir won the world championships um, in in Toronto right Against yeah. Jeff Hunt. So um, his, his communication skills, I think, still is, is probably, you know, one of the things that got Jahangir to that, uh, to that pinnacle. In Ten British Opens, it's, it's going to be hard to beat, I think, in, in this era
0: absolutely and and you can just see i mean there's a, a fair bit of footage on youtube the old footage of those guys training in the mountains and in, in in pakistan and uh uh the stuff that they would do and the coaching that that he was doing with uh, Jahangir. you you can see it a, a bit on you, youtube and uh it, it's quite sort of uh, i think it may have been unprecedented obviously uh Jonah uh, led the way in terms of the physicality uh, involved in, in that type of training, but uh, Jahangir may have uh, taken it to another level.
1: It was definitely another level. Um, he did a lot of altitude training up in the Himalayas, uh, two months before the, the British Open every year. So they would spend a couple of months um, just, just doing that to get his, uh, to get his blood, ox- blood oxygen level. Up there, but uh, you know, I, if you don't mind, I, I'd like I'd like to share some of the some of the things that we did in, in, in Wembley and, and some of the stuff that Robert used to put us through. Absolutely, um, yeah. And and also Jahangir. So I'll give you a, a breakdown of the schedule of the day, um, and and uh, you know, some people some people think they trained pretty hard, but you know, back in those days, this this was unprecedented. So the, the day pretty much started off. Uh, 6 o'clock in the morning with a ten mile run eight or ten mile run <laughs> okay. was, was, just, was just to get going um, yeah. a ten mile run back then took me about an hour and an hour and ten minutes an hour and twenty minutes and uh, after that we'd come back uh, to our apartments for breakfast we'd go back out for another two hour uh, coaching session, so one on one with Ramit or or with each other, uh, followed by one hour of skipping back home for lunch. Back One hour out from of skipping. Nashville. One hour of skipping. Yeah. Okay. Uh,
0: you know, okay.
1: Stay on your toes. Keep fit. Yeah. Um, agility. That. That was. Um. There wasn't a lot of what we do today with plyometrics and. Uh, you know. It's a lot more advanced these days. But this is what this is what they did back then. So mm. come back for lunch after the skipping, and then, after some of the guys would have a short nap, um, and then between say three and five o'clock we'd have. Uh, Matches so we'd have match play either condition games or matches and one of the interesting things that we used to do was the guys used to used to play for money, so it wasn 't a lot of money you know one, one pound or five quid we'd throw it the front of the, the front of the court, and then whoever won that particular game would, would win the bounties so so to speak <laughs> okay. so it it, it wasn 't that much, but I tell you once we put something on the line, it meant a lot there was a lot of
0: the difference in,
1: in in mentality towards playing the game shifted just slightly enough to to warrant a different type of uh, um, strategy. Yeah. Um, so a- af- after the after the training on court with the, with a match play, we uh, we head into the locker room and they didn't have a big gym or anything. They just had a few weights in the locker room and they did weights for about an hour. So uh, bench presses, uh, you know. Nothing very extravagant, but it was there was a little bit of weight training, and then to, f- to finalize the day, we'd hit head, head to one of the local, um, uh, I guess, YMCA's or whatever they had in, in in England, and did an hour of swimming. Right. So yeah. Growing up in the Bahamas, I was I was a pretty decent swimmer by then. Uh, Jahangir was not. He was <laughs> he was he could hardly swim. We saw yeah. footage of him. Um, but you know what he did it, and uh, yeah. and Ramit said the best time to do the swimming was at the end of the day, where you know you can you can relax your muscles and still yeah get absolutely.
0: And, he obviously uh, knew what he was doing. Ramad went and t- I mean to finish the day with the swimming, it's sort of therapeutic, but also still pushing your uh, you know the cardio a bit.
1: Yeah, so it, it still it still pushed the cardio and still up that that oxygen intake, and uh, you know I mean it it. One of the things that stops a lot of players and, you know, Greg Gaultier would be, would to this and, or any other player that has any injury is, is exactly that is, uh, you know, if you get injured, I mean, that's, this, this, uh, this kind of sport is, is very taxing. It's very hard on the body and, um, and Ramit you back then, I don't know if it was intuition or if it, if it was something that he learned or picked up, but he knew to do that at the end of the day, whereas mm. I mean, if, if you're a professional swimmer, you do that. Early early in the morning, so maybe four or four thirty in the morning here the pool
0: um, well what about uh, uh I'm just thinking uh, uh in terms of diet uh, did they did they give much thought to uh what they what they ingested uh back then because it, you know back back when we played we were drinking coke and and uh, having big macs before we played didn't we
1: <laughs> yeah so we we didn't really know much about diet back then um, yeah. there wasn't there wasn't much information about it as there is today. And um, certainly was much harder to find uh, to find good information uh, and books on, on it. Um, but it, it it was around. But our diets were completely horrendous. <laughs> to, to <say laughs> I,
0: really. guess, I guess I guess with mean, those guys, it would have been a bit more just you know not necessarily knowledge, but common sense uh, would prevail. I, I would imagine.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I, I went I went to England, and um, you know, my idea of a good of a good meal would be would be a a box of fish and chips because I got my protein, I got my carbohydrates right, and right. I thought that was great. I'd get some Ribena, which was full of sugar. Um, and you know, the, all of the stuff was deep fried and, and uh, wasn't really the healthiest meal. There was no greens involved or any of that kind of stuff. Um, but I mean, there was, there were tennis players that were doing other things. Um, Navratilova had, had a specific diet called yeah. to win and, yeah. uh, and so forth. But um, the squash players, I mean, hanging around it. I mean, they ate a lot of curry, chicken, honey. and, and, and <laughs> yeah, but, well, it wasn't really, it wasn't really the most, uh, you know, clean and cut diet that, uh, that exists today.
0: Right, so. right. Well, Max, uh, you know, we could talk, this could be a, you know, podcast episode in and of itself. Uh, I'd like to fast <laughs> forward a bit, uh, though. Now you and I lost touch, uh, I guess when I was in Seoul, uh, for a few years there didn't re- we didn't really touch base that often and then eventually you found yourself uh, uh in Colombia um so and, and this is where your relationship with Miguel uh, I guess uh took off I'm assuming so how did it all play out for you just in a, in a thumbnail how did you find your way to uh Cartagena so Cartagena Cartagena, <laughs>
1: Cartagena.
0: yes Cartagena
1: Car- and you can Carten-
0: roll the yes
1: Car- Cartagena, if you're okay, you know yeah. but don't say Cartagena. Is uh, you know, "Romancing the Stone" and and uh, Michael Douglas screwed it up. Uh, Did they? When that movie, uh, he, yeah. when they came, is is he, that, he came that, out.
0: That's where I got my pronunciation. That's where I got the pronunciation from from that film. Yeah, Cartagena. everyone thinks
1: Everyone thinks it's Cartagena, but there's no there's Cartagena. no to over, over that Cartagena. over that end. So, it's, <laughs> okay. but comes so and comes. Yeah, I love Cartagena. It says. Cartagena so Cartagena. yeah so so what happened was um, in two thousand and six, I was still playing a bit of squash i wasn't i wasn't playing professionally anymore um, and i uh, I was invited to play in this the Central American and Caribbean games which was which is actually held in Cartagena that built uh, seven beautiful squash courts, uh, including a at the time a twenty foot a twenty five foot double softball court and um, I was right, invited to play and I, I played in the mixed doubles. Um, and actually, we, we lost in the finals um, uh, to the Mexicans, and and uh, so that that's that's what happened. I ended up in, in, in Cartagena. Um, that was my introduction, and I thought this you know this is quite an interesting city. It had yes. this wall, this incredible preserved walled city, uh, um, and uh, there was really nothing else that I had would seen similar to that in in this part of the world. The Americas being Central America, South America. And uh you know the city today is is four hundred and eighty six years old so wow. it's um mm. it was discovered in fifteen thirty three by the spanish but but it has a lot of prehistoric um
0: well preserved obviously then yeah
1: yeah, so you know the walled city was just incredible has it has a huge uh, castle that's uh the biggest the biggest um, uh, it's not really a castle it's a fort that was built by the Spanish back in the 1700s and yeah, even even today it would be an, an enormous project. Um, back then they had no cranes or any any machines. All it's all made by hands and and horses and donkeys. I mean that that was it. Mm-hmm. So I thought this is this is quite an interesting spot. I I had a, studied hotel restaurant management, um, and and I had a travel agency in Toronto. I was thinking that this place actually started to take off. Could be interesting in a few years. And you know, fast forward, um, well. 12, 13 years now, um, it has. It's it's become uh, quite lucrative. It's it, mm. There's there's a lot of huge boutique hotels and big names coming into town. Um,
0: yeah, it's a huge uh, tourist destination, isn't it? Uh,
1: yeah. So, you know, we spoke to the to the uh, to the airport um, a few years ago, and and uh, they had recorded five million passengers coming into the airport. Uh, 2017, which was three years ahead of the projection uh, wow. that they they had estimated. So uh, we don't have the numbers yet for last year, but uh, I'm sure it's it's topped that. I mean, that doesn't include cruise ships, uh, people flying in um, right to Bogota, Medellin, and then driving down here uh, and so forth. So it's um it, it it's it's quite interesting. You know, we and we've got. You know the big Canadian brands coming in Four Seasons, so it's under right. construction now. And mm-hmm. so you know, when that opens up, it's going to be another flood of uh, of high end tourists, uh, which is which is going to be great, I think.
0: Well, that, yeah, that'll be great for. I mean, you obviously you've got um, you've got other things set up there outside outside of squash. But uh, that—that's when you began to uh, began working with uh, with Miguel, I assume. So, how how did this relationship? Uh, how did you strike up with the relationship with Miguel? I would imagine it was shortly uh, after you you settled there. Right. So,
1: I got here in two thousand and six uh, for the game, but I wasn't here permanently. I actually moved here in two thousand and nine, the end of two thousand nine, two thousand and ten, um, and. The South American Championships was being played in Medellin, um, and the squash federation had invited me to come as a referee. I'm a, I'm a certified referee as well, so I went and and refereed at the tournament. And uh, after the tournament, um, Miguel had won that actually, and and I I went to Miguel and I and I said, you know, you should really think about doing some mental coaching. Um, at the time, what I had been doing was uh, I was mentored by. Uh, guy by the name of John Asaraf who's in The mm-hmm. Secret. Um, and John is a business coach, but he's very specifically into, into the mental coaching of business owners. Um, but he does it in a very specific way and it's all based on neuroscience. Um, so I had decided let's, you know, why don't we try and do something with the squash players here? And I bounced it off of Miguel and he liked the idea. And, uh, so the summer of uh, 2010, we started working together uh, just on a weekly basis. Um, every Sunday, I remember those days, you know, still fresh in my mind. Uh, and uh, I think back then he was he was right about 36 or 37 in the world, something around there. Um, he had had an ankle injury um, that was plaguing him for a couple of years. So he, he dropped from, I think he was 20 or 21 in the world at the time. He dropped back down to the, to the, you know, to the thirties. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then we started working every Sunday. We talk about, uh, you know, his visualization program, what he, what he was doing, what were his goals? What did he really love doing? You know, what was, what did he think was holding him back? Um, what did he like about traveling? What did he hate about traveling? I mean, One of the things that he, he mentioned, I still remember is uh, he missed his, his mother's cooking and food <laughs> from Colombia. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, really, you know, most, most of these guys are really simple sort of yeah. things, but, but when you miss something and you want to be in a different place, then you're not, you're not present in the moment where you are. Um, right. And they, and, mm. and they can subconsciously, they can, they can really uh, hinder a person. So over, over the summer, we did these programs and we, we, we uh, I, I built him a, a few, um, uh, we call mind movies, um, which is basically mm-hmm. a slideshow with all of his goals. Um, in there set the music, the, set, the, set, the type of music that he likes. Uh, we even made a, an image of, of, of a world ranking where he was in the top, uh, top five and top 10 and, and so forth um, with the points. I mean, we we're very specific about everything. Um, and then in September, he ended up winning the, the Colombian Open um, Against Ollie, so I mean, Oli was ranked, I think, twenty-one at the time, or top twenty, right. and that was, a, that was a that was his first big win. And his mom called me. I was I was on the beach in Cartagena, uh, <laughs> having lunch, <laughs> and uh, and she calls me all excited. Hey, Miguel, won! Da-da-da. And uh, you know, we were we were going pretty crazy back then because it was it was a big win for him. It was a big um, it was a big comeback win, and yeah. it just it just started from that. And, and just, I remember.
0: Well, squash player did a did a great piece on on you and Miguel after the British Open, and uh, he mentioned in there uh, that uh, with respect to the the injury, he just he said that uh, well, he gave you credit for for speedy recovery, uh, which uh, you know after the injury fell, I think he fell to the the low of the around thirty six or thirty seven in the world. So how uh, just in terms of you know people who may be suffering from some sort of injury like, like Miguel's. Uh, what was it that you plant? What sort of seed did you plant mentally for him to uh, get back on track uh, relatively uh, quickly?
1: Sure. So, I, I mean, I can, I can share some of the information. Uh, um, one, of, one of the things that, that we've figured out, in, uh, it's, 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 very, it's very counterintuitive, but um, a lot of the injuries, uh, almost every injury that we have is, uh, starts in the mind. So the type of mentality, the type of thinking that we have uh, causes the injury. And so we figured that if that causes the injury, then it's in a specific reversal of that or reverse engineering of that thinking um, would actually heal the injury. And there's been a lot of science behind it and there's been a lot of um, people that have, have supported it. But at the end of the day, um, it's, it's really a lot about belief and uh, and really training your training your mind and your subconscious mind specifically um, on on how to how to heal your body. Uh, you know, there's there's been a lot of studies um, on the placebo effect and taking a sugar pill versus a real pill. Um, and a lot of times, um, the human mind can actually do some incredible things. And and it's it's very powerful in releasing specific chemicals to heal, I mean, when you cut yourself, do you ever think about how that, how that cut gets healed? You put a bandaid over it, and, you know, one or two weeks, it's completely healed. That's right. all the subconscious mind. So if you can learn how to train your subconscious mind to do specific things consciously, and then eventually we have like a four, a four levels of consciousness, eventually what will happen is subconsciously you will be thinking of the right thing at the right time. Um, Right. And, and and that's how we basically you know fix that fix that problem.
0: Right. So to, just to train yourself to think about the right things at the right time and let it happen without thinking, basically.
1: Yeah. So I mean, we use a lot of affirmations and something we call affirmations, uh, right. which is basically an, an affirmation in, in the form of a question. Um, you do them at specific times. You do them uh, and you 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 write them out in specific ways. Um, and then and I, I love sharing that information because I mean, it helps so many people. It's, you know, there, there was, uh, I think I'm, it, and by by no means is this a the program that I, that I teach is, it, is it a religious course, but there, there was one quote I remember from, from the Bible that said, Jesus never healed anyone. He just instilled the belief, you know, of people to heal themselves. Uh, right. So, I mean, it, it's like a, so you, you'll remember John Fredericks, or, you know, the weasel yeah. back in back in Toronto. He, he once told me.
0: Also, remiss not to mention him amongst uh, those players I mentioned earlier. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So just so the audience know, John Fredericks was one of the top um, national players in Canada for many, many years. He, he's run, I think he's run every year, every day in his life uh, yeah. for the last like 40 or 50 years, <laughs> something like this, maybe about 20 or 30 marathons. Right. So he, I mean, we were in the national squad training one year. And I remember him saying, "I can't do your push-ups for you." <laughs> so not, I'll never forget <laughs> that. Like, you know, you have to go do it yourself. And yeah. in the article that um, that Squad player did, um, you know, I can't go and and do the training that Miguel has to do. Um, I can't do once I give him the instructions for for his visualization um, and so forth. He has to actually go and do it. Uh, do it. Um, so you can give a person as much uh, information as possible. Mm-hmm. Will they go and do it? I mean, you can only tell. There's, and there's one sure way that you can tell is by the results.
0: Well, obviously, so, uh, I mean, he uh, fast forward again to to the British Open last year. And uh, it was clear to me that uh, there was something special happening from, from basically from about the second round uh, onwards. He had... Uh, he had a focus uh, that was there and, sp- and uh, of course in the match against uh, mohammed uh, in the final there so so i guess uh he he bought in obviously so take us take us through uh, through that event and and uh, what that meant to uh to you as his mental coach because uh clearly what you were selling uh, worked
1: yeah so again communication was important um, one of the things we talk about is that you know, all results basically happen way before uh, they do physically in our reality. So we, um, we go through a certain mental preparation um, and that's been tested with, with many athletes, especially sprinters. Like they've, they've put uh, mind maps on, on sprinters and had them imagine, just imagine running their 100-meter race, for example, and then running it in real life and the times are almost exactly the same. So mm-hmm. what you do in your mind, right, you do it in your mind first. You know, one of the first things I, I teach my students is everything is created twice. So first in your mind, and then it happens in reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can, take, you can take anything that you can that you can t- put your fingers on right now, your computer, your cell phone, um, the table, the chair you're sitting in. All of those things were created first by some, someone's, uh, someone's vision. Uh, in the mind, a metaphysical thing, nothing you can touch or touch or smell or or uh, or hear or any, anything like that and then eventually gets made so the same thing happens um, and happened with 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 uh, with uh, Miguel um, he had created uh, a uh, an image of him winning the tournament um, and he and he put that image on his cell phone so the, the the seed had been planted many many months before he even got to the British Open,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, and so he he had visualized this, visualized the feeling, visualized what uh, um, what it would feel like, um, and and then you have to you know just go out there and, and trust trust your beliefs. It has to be a very strong belief. It has to be a reason why you, you want to win um, to to get that belief in, and you know it takes about approximately 90 days, uh, on average to, um, to get those, those, those beliefs solidified. So something called myelination, which is, um, mm. a, a neuroscience term, basically that, you know, all the information, all the connections and beliefs run through the brain and, and they connect to the body. So, uh, we go through those, those emotions and those connections and, and, uh, they take quite a while. So it, it doesn't happen on the court. Mm. Um, You know, people see it happening and they think, okay, he hasn't, you know, he's never beaten uh, uh, Mohammed um, for X amount of years um, and never in a major, major tournament. And uh, so when he did that, it was like, oh, wow, this is, you know, this is amazing. And, and, um, but it's all done in the mind first. And, and that's, and and that's how it, and that's how he got, that's how he got the result. He believed it. He envisioned it.
0: Well, you he could definitely see the, the self belief was there, and uh, he stuck. I mean, he he was stuck in from from beginning till end. He he didn't leave that uh, whatever where, that place where wherever he was to get to the British Open title. He didn't leave that place.
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, he he had made this this uh, this image and put it on his cell phone. So every time he saw it, every time he he replied to a a message on his phone or answered a call it was always imprinting on his, on his mind and his subconscious, um, until it became something natural that, that he expected. So there's the the word expectancy is is another thing that we work on. And it's, you know, it's, it's been tested as well in, in scientific studies that when you expect a certain thing to happen, um, there's a higher probability of it happening. But I'll tell you what, when the tournament started, I mean, he, he'd already beaten Rami Ashour in the first round, uh, I don't, I'm not sure Rami was, was his fittest back then or if he was, if he was hampered, but it was, it was a match where, I mean, if you let Rami beat you, he's going to beat you. He, yeah. you, can't just, you just can't give it to him, even if he is injured. I mean, I've seen him win tournaments. I mean, when you, he's most competing. people
0: just go on the court before the match against him and, and, and they've lost already. So
1: Yeah, so that, again, totally man, mindset, right? right? So they've decided to, to, to lose before. He, but last year, Miguel did not decide to lose he decided he's going to he's going win every single match but I, I'm usually the last person that that people call because um when when people have to call me basically it's because you know nothing else has worked so w- what happened with 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 uh, Miguel last year is that he had prepared himself mentally he had his beliefs down pat, so he was carrying himself in a different way his body language was completely different he was he was very upright he was very uh very positive. Um, he was basically, the, you know, the alpha guy walking around Hall mm. um, at the time, and uh, so he got he got past Rami, and yet I think he played Omar after that, right? Yeah.
0: Um, Omar uh, Maguid.
1: Ma, Ma, Masoud, right? Masoud, um, right, right, Masoud. 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 and and, right. and then and then he beat Ali, um, and, and so but so when he. When he had his first first match, he sent me a message. He said, "Hey, you know, Max, my uh, feeling a little bit, a little bit oozy. My stomach is," and he, I think, he mentioned it in, in his victory speech. Um, and we we had to learn, uh, had to help him to settle his stomach. So we did a very simple thing at, at the time. We we did a a very simple tea, which was ginger and lemon. Um, ginger is very good for calming calming the nerves. Um, mm-hmm. But we also used a lot of uh, a lot of audios that that helps to, to calm, calm the brain wavelengths mm-hmm. um, and I'm very'm I'm very, I'm very I, you know I believe in those sort of things' it's, it's uh, again being proven scientifically when you have your mind in a specific brain wavelength that you can do amazing things depending
0: on what you want to do those kind of um, audio uh, stuff you could probably find a fairly easily on, uh, online somewhere I would imagine
1: yeah. Yeah, you, you can find them easily online, but they're not all good.
0: Okay, yeah.
1: So there's some that, uh, that are what we call guided meditations, mm-hmm. and sometimes the wording just isn't the right wording for the goal that you're, that you're striving for. So you have to be very careful, and there's some specific types of uh, audios that are re- recorded um, in a very special way for left brain, right brain. Um, right. So you have to get those ones as well.
0: So. <clears throat> Now, that's
1: actually one of the, sorry, that's, that's actually one of the things we used, uh, in his healing process. So,
0: okay. um, okay. Yeah. Now, uh, now after, uh, oh, actually you and I caught up in, uh, in Dubai at the super series final, it's the first time I'd seen you uh, in like 20 years or something or, or more. Uh, and it was, uh, during that event, uh, Miguel, Miguel played well, but, uh, no, he didn't. He didn't uh, get through to the to the final or the semi. But uh, and then I noticed in the squash player you mentioned uh, in the article uh, there that the players that um, that have a coach with them this this doesn't obviously doesn't always make a or doesn't make a difference in the game. And I think you kind of alluded during that event to the fact that Miguel had gotten some some coaching that took him off his path. And perhaps uh, in, a more, in a more recent event, I think you may have alluded to that as well, where he had, he'd actually been playing well, but then something went wrong mentally for him. So I don't know if you could elaborate on that. The players having a coach with them doesn't uh, always uh, necessitate uh, or make a make a big difference.
1: Yeah, so first of all, let me qualify that. So not every player is the same, mm. but... In, in Miguel's place, the only major tournament he's won. The fact is, is is when he did not have anyone standing beside him or anyone calling, uh, calling him between games. Um, he had to depend on reaching into his own subconscious mind to find mm-hmm. all the solutions, all the strategies, all the techniques that he that he needed to win each match and each, and, and obviously eventually the tournament. Um, that's just that's just proof right there. But you know, some some players need it. I'm not saying everyone uh, does need it, but here here's the science behind it, I and mean, this is this is why I, I, I said what I said, because when when you are in a match, you have to be in a certain specific brain wavelength. When you get in that specific brain wavelength, um, a lot of people know it as the flow. So when you're in the flow, um, everything's going right. Uh, you're getting all the referee calls going your way. You're getting all the lucky bounces, all the nicks. You're you're getting uh, you're picking up uh, shots that normally you wouldn't pick up. Um, you're in the right spot. You're hitting the right shots, and all of those things are working for you, right? Um, mm-hmm. When you get off the court, right, and you have a coach come up to you and give you instructions, what it does is it actually pulls the brain out of flow. So. Mm-hmm. This was specifically you're in, you're in an alpha, normally in, a, in an alpha brain wavelength when you're on the court. Um, when you actually get instructions, you have to think about it. That's a different part of the brain. You have to switch from being in alpha to beta, which is the prefrontal cortex. When you're doing that, you slip out of flow. Now some players can slip back into flow very quickly. Some players can't, mm. right? So that's that's the trick right there. So yeah, sometimes, some I mean, sometimes
0: that. you notice, uh, you know, a guy will be caught talking to his coach, and uh, he'll he'll have won the game, the first game. Then he'll be speaking to his coach, and then suddenly he's kind of lost it in the second game. I mean, I mean, there there's obviously other reasons for for that to happen to happen, obviously, but uh, uh, maybe it speaks to what you're saying.
1: Yeah. So you'll you'll see this all the time. I mean, I think if just just out of common sense of if if player's won a game there's not really much that you need to, to instruct them on except to continue doing what you're doing which mm-hmm. should be obvious
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, but a lot of a lot of coaches may go in there and tell them to do other things and and but it doesn't matter what you tell them you basically you still have to slip out of flow to to get uh, to get the instructions and then think about what they're saying and then interpret it and then put it into action right so, so that's, that's the trick right there. Like some players need a good shouting at between matches. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we've discussed this a lot, um, and we've looked at tennis as well. Tennis does not allow coaching between games. Yeah. Um, originally, uh, specifically, I mean, the reason was because they didn't uh, – and this is happening in squash right now as a new rule, is this, as of, uh, I think, March the 4th, right? So you're not allowed to have um, cell phones uh, – during during a match, um,
0: yeah. Tarek Moman posted some something uh, over the last, last couple of weeks, and I was I it seemed kind of cryptic. I I, I wasn't quite sure what he was getting at, but uh, something yeah, along so those lines, yeah.
1: Right. So the new PSA rule states that you cannot have a cell phone. You cannot use a cell phone between games mm. um, a, anymore. That's that's a PSA rule, and right. and I think and I think it had a, a little bit to do. I don't know if. It, it was, uh, they were anticipating the future of betting and that sort of stuff. But um, whatever the case, uh, tennis doesn't allow it. You're not even allowed to uh, allowed to, to be coached between games in, in a oh, tennis yeah. match. Yeah, they, they, they so. get
0: uh, was it penalized for, for even kind of, if even yeah, if correct. They like they're getting coached.
1: Yeah, yeah so, you know, um, Serena got penalized heavily yeah. last year at, at the U.S. Open when she uh when she was caught receiving you know, signs from her coach up in the stands <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: and, uh, and they know it's not, but I think, you know, they've studied this approach for many, many years, decades in fact. Um, and, and, and they know the tennis community knows that players will get, will, will, will perform better when they're just by themselves. Yeah. Um, and they've, they've got, you know, they've, they've built a, a massive tennis uh, circuit and they know what they're doing. I mean, they're, they are basically what squash wants to be uh, in terms of professional circuit and and prize money and so forth. Um, Right. You know, so we should follow, we should follow the lead of successful traits. I mean, that's, that's how we get coach. We we follow uh, coaches that are successful and performances that are successful. Why not? Why not associations?
0: Right. So, right. That makes sense. Um, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see uh, how uh, to hear more about about the cell phone thing though. Um I I guess maybe maybe they're talking a little bit about it on, on Squash TV now with the Canary Wharf uh, event going on. I, I haven't I've only watched a few of the matches and haven't heard anything about it, but uh um yeah. Yeah, well, it's
1: going to be it's going to be hard to enforce. I mean, you, they're saying that you can you can wear a cell uh uh for example, that the Apple Watch is, you know, has communicational um, mm. options uh, with yeah. your, with your, you can receive messages, but you're allowed to wear it if you don't, um, you know, if it's not connected. But how, how do you check that? I mean, does so you're, allowed, you're not, you're not allowed
0: to use the audio, but you can use the visual. is basically what they're.
1: <laughs> well, they're saying it can't be connected to any messaging uh, device. Right. Okay. So you, you can wear your watch, but you can't you can't connect the. Uh, messaging
0: that you're okay. getting from your cell phone okay. so well max you've been uh, really great with your time now i know um uh one thing that i, I wanted to ask you about before you go into something that you you uh, wanted to uh, to bring up as well is uh, your thoughts on the the olympic bid um you you had some thoughts on it as well and i think i'd like to you know it'd be great to share them uh what are your what are your thoughts on on what happened you've you've maybe maybe heard a, a couple of uh, the episodes here that. BBC guy, uh, Nick Hope, who came on and uh, basically just said uh, he saw the writing on the wall at the youth games when uh, when squash, when the squash venue was uh, way off on the sort of off the beaten path where no one was watching. Meanwhile, breaking was uh, right there in the middle of the city in, in the urban uh, park that they called it. And uh, even though squash had that uh, youth games uh, invite, uh, he, he kind of just felt that it wasn't gonna go Squash's way, which was uh, what happened. So uh, what are your thoughts uh, anyways on, on the latest setback?
1: Right, well, you know, this is the fourth time that Squash has been denied in the Olympic games. I, th- I think we, we hold the record for that. We, that's one thing that, we <laughs> yeah. want, that we've there won. We <laughs> um, so that, that means, uh, obviously, the last 16 years plus uh, preparation time uh, which is seven years in advance of, of the decision might be might have been different back uh, 16 years ago, but um, th- that we've that we failed to figure it out. Um, I, I actually when I when I was in Birmingham at the World Masters in 2012, I spoke to uh, to Andrew Shelley uh, about you know an opportunity um, because I had the success I I did with my business um, and also with Miguel. I thought why not why not engage some, some guys that do this for a living? They do this day in, day out. I've got a team of guys that, that, uh, that pitch professionally. They raise millions and actually hundreds of millions and billions of dollars um, every year for Fortune 500 companies. Uh, you know They're professional at uh, reading people's body language, um, all these sort of things that, that, it, it, that basically is, is what Squash was attempting to do. Uh, I, I know the Squash, uh, World Squash Federation, um, have joined with PSA. And, uh, but there's, there's, some, there's some things that, you know, that they, they could have done differently. Of course, you look at that in, in hindsight. Um, but the writing was on the wall. I mean, I, I listened to your interview uh, with the BBC guy. And, and uh, you know, Squash Federation right now still has the 2012 video on their official website which mm-hmm. is which is obscene, at least we should you you would think that i mean the Olympic Committee is looking at all those things, they're looking at our social media they're looking at our our following and and what we have and i and I posted um on the squash page squash world a few few weeks ago or last week um of all the top uh squash pages i mean I think Nicole david has uh, this upwards of of eight hundred eight hundred and a thousand um likes uh or followers. And, and that's the top. I mean, right. and I, I checked for, I checked for a skateboard and the break dancing and they were up in the millions. Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. you know, it's just, it's just not even a, well, that, that's the
0: entertainment industry uh, all in one there. You've got breaking combined with, uh, you know, music pretty much. Yeah. Some, somehow, I, somehow you get squash needs to tap into, into something else.
1: Well, this is, this is my point on just, I mean, I'm not really a researcher to that degree, but I, I know how to get the answers for this kind of information. And, and um, you know, 2012, um, you know, eight years ago now, it's, it's, uh, it's something that, that um, the Squash Federation should have looked at. I mean, I found video footage of, uh, of what this, the Olympic Association was looking for to qualify. But we talk a lot about, you know, the Olympic Committee moving the goalposts and all this kind of thing i don't think it has to do with that i mean if you if you're delivering um, a presentation and you want to get into a, in, into a, a major games like this you you've got to know what you're doing you've got to know how to present uh to to the uh, to the association you've got to know who you're presenting to what they're looking for um and i found footage back in 2012 um that related to that that point about uh the olympic committee looking at at um, attracting younger audiences, I mean, it, it was—it's not that hard to find. But I'm surprised that the people that that were hired to do the, the bidding um, didn't tap into these simple things. I mean, mm. right. So one one of the things that we um, we we found in in the comparisons of the pitches uh, is that um, we we found that the World Squash Federation slash PSA pitch was was over 30 minutes and one one of the things that that the professional team does is uh they look for different aspects of of how to go go about um presenting basically and just in comparison the the famous TED talks that are that are on uh the the, uh, the net um they're only about 18 to 20 minutes and and there's a neurological reason for that there's um there's a lot of science that backs up the way people do the pitch and what we do in the pitch. And I'm not sure how the pitch was presented um, to the Olympic committee, but uh, it seemed like it was a bit long. Um, And uh, even if it's over 20 minutes or 25 minutes, uh, what we're doing is we're, we're pitching our ideas and we think it's fantastic. And it's got all these different uh, uh, components to it. the problem is the person receiving the pitch, their, their brain doesn't actually work that way. They're not listening with that part of the brain that's, that's interpreting all of that information. They're actually listening uh, to the croc brain, which um, you, know, if you if you think about the human brain, it, it was actually developed in three stages, the croc brain, the social brain, and the neocortex. And right. we're, we're, giving the, we're giving the pitch with our neocortex with all the specific ideas, and plans and and so forth, um, but the person listening to the pitch, the Olympic Committee, um, they're listening to it with their croc brain. So it's a very simple thing. Um, they're looking for a very short uh, approach. They're looking for whether it, there's a threat to the to the brain. All sorts of things like this. And so professional they, guys, Are be
0: looking for something uh, sort of unexpected as well. Like, uh, or, or and would that have something to do with uh, maybe catching them? Uh, 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 sort of catching, getting, catching their interest, I guess.
1: Yeah, so my, my feeling is, um, to, well, to answer your question, yeah, if it's not new and exciting, the brain ignores it, basically. So right. the people re- receiving the pitch will, will, will ignore it. Um, on a subconscious level, they're not even aware of, of, of this most, most of the time, unless they've studied this, this sort of stuff. But my feeling is that we've been pitching a very similar underlining tone of, of information to the Olympic committee for the last 16 years. Uh, You know, any of the comments that we have, it's, it's always basically about the same thing. You know, we have so many people have 20 million um, participants and we have so many countries that participate. Uh, Squash is a great athletic sport. Um, You know, it's, it's in, uh, what, 148 countries and, and, you know, the court can be put up and, and brought down. Like all of those things are, it's not new to the Olympic committee anymore. They've heard it already. So automatically what the, what the new, the, the, uh, the croc brain does is it's, it starts to just block it out because it's, it's something that's, it's not new novelty is a huge influence on the decision-making factors of the brain. And, and if it's nothing new that's coming around, then it, it's going to ignore it. I think probably the, the most innovative thing that's come around, um, is is the new squash wall with with uh, with with all the innovation? The interactive with, squash um, wall. Yeah. Yeah. The the interactive squash wall exactly. It um, that's new. Um, but I think everything else is is not much that's that's changed really in in the approach of the pitch. And right, so we I have mean, to look
0: to me, it seems to me I mean uh, we saw what it's capable of uh, you were there in Dubai as well and I guess uh, at the other uh, venues when you uh, when you were with Miguel I mean it, it's really great what they're able to do with it in in so many ways but I, um I don't know if you feel the same way but if they're sort of uh, putting all their eggs into that basket um I don't you know I don't think that's a, a wise uh, decision either
1: Yeah that's that's not going to be enough um obviously I mean they're looking for all the criteria so they're looking for a blanket of new ideas from the squash community which will include and hit all of those four other topics that we talked about so you know all the different revenue streams uh, uh, that that will contribute towards funding the, the games and mm-hmm. and the squash in particular um they're looking for the the youth aspect in and and how many people are going to be actually you know viewing uh, viewing the sport um Yes and they're looking for the uh, the ability to, to to put down to, to put up and, and put down the the uh, the court very quickly um, and and save space and all that kind of stuff but um, we we've, we've still got a we still got a lot of homework to do obviously and and that's that's basically the point i mean you know the, the guys that that I recommended to Andrew Shelley back in two thousand and twelve this was before Rio right so this was right. This was when the Argentinian um, uh, pitch was going out. And, uh, well, uh, they've, um, they've made a lot of mistakes. You know, hopefully we can correct for the next one. Uh, but in the meanwhile, all, all the great players are, are losing their opportunities to perform. Yeah. To, uh, they just to keep perform. going by and going by, yeah. you know. Time just keeps going by. Time doesn't yeah. stop for anyone.
0: <laughs> no, no. That's, uh, that's the truth. Yeah. So, well, I guess that- I mean with LA coming up, um, there is that opportunity. I mean, it, it doesn't really bode well there either with the the other sports that uh, in America that are quite popular. But squash is really sort of uh, it seems to have taken off uh, in a big way, uh, especially on the eastern uh, side of the the, the country, uh, with all of the uh, expect, uh, with the uh, the U.S. at the academic side of it, with the American University. Uh, uh, collegiate uh, game and then also at the the high school level with lots of uh, new facilities uh there but I'm not sure how that plays out in terms of uh, the broader appeal that uh, that they that they're looking for in terms of a new new sport
1: yeah i, I don't think it, i don't think it's enough having i mean i think eighty percent of the squash played in the United States is on the east coast yeah. so los angeles you know in the, in the west coast doesn't have very much i mean it it has been around for a while. I mean, uh, uh, Tom Jones and Hazel Jones um, from Squash News back in the nineteen eighties. Uh, they started. They actually started the whole, the whole U.S. tour. Um, the first one was in nineteen eighty nine that I played in, and it went all over the states. We had about uh, I think about eight or nine stops, and one was in Los Angeles, um, uh, Seattle, uh, Houston. Mm-hmm. And uh, a few other stops, and then we went on to South America and played you know, some, some very decent n- number of tournaments. Um, mm-hmm. So it's been going for a while, and they, it, those were the guys that started it. So uh, it's, it's not, for, for lack of a better term, so the, the time thing. that We should have learned by now um, yeah. what we needed to do to really scale this thing, and, and that, has, that just hasn't happened. We just re- really need a proper team that understands how to do this Uh, Well, let's see.
0: uh, Let's see what the WSF and the uh, PSA and and the squash community as a whole. I mean, we have to get together and try to uh, correct uh, the the latest, uh, you know, uh, mistakes that we've made and see how we can go forward with with it uh, in L.A. Now, uh, now Max, I know, um, uh, thanks so much for your time. Now I'd like like you to tell us a little bit more about, cause I've, I've seen a bit of it on, uh, on Facebook and, uh, it's sort of connected to what you're doing and what you've done uh, in squash as a, uh, as a mental coach to Miguel and other players, uh, the mental trainer certification uh, program that you have going. Uh, could you give us a little background on that? And, uh, I mean, it sounds quite interesting and I'm sure, you know, we all, we all do the training. We all put in the time on court, but, uh, the mental aspect of the game might be something uh, that that we'd like to learn uh, a bit more about.
1: Right. So, uh, two years ago, 2017, um, I was invited to to uh, participate in the World Squash Federation Coaching Conference uh, in Bucaramanga, in, in Colombia, and um, I, I presented the, the the program on on my mental approach that I use with Miguel, which is loosely based on on the business. Uh, program
0: um, That was before the British Open I guess
1: that, that was before yeah. the British Open mm-hmm. yeah so what what I basically uh, found in in my research is that this the most of the squash coaching certifications don't have a very in-depth element of of the mental side of, of the co- of the coaching um, program and uh, I looked at pretty much all the books that are out there that either professionals have written or other enthusiastic um, squash uh, authors have written and there wasn't there wasn't much content um, to the level that that I was uh, that I was performing with with Miguel and so I thought well you know someone told me this many many years ago um, you know why don't you just do your own certification back then it was on something something else it was just on on the basic skills and I thought well if no one else is going to do it and it's not out there, then I might as well fill that gap. And and so that's basically what I've done. So it's it's basically a certification program where I teach all the skills uh, that's that, that I used uh, over the last uh, 10 years um, or eight years with Miguel and um, all the stuff that I've learned from my business coaches on a neuroscience base. Um, and I've put that into a certification program over, over three months because it, it does take, uh, approximately 90 days as I mentioned earlier to to get all of these beliefs and and strategies um, all coordinated properly and for right. the student to to really get all of the concepts and then apply them
0: so so is this meant uh, meant more for the uh, for for a coach or maybe parents or even even the player uh
1: yeah so we've actually had um a nice cross section of all three um we had parents uh, coaches and players uh, that have participated in the in the first uh the first program last year um amanda Sobey was one of them uh, as well so mm. uh so we, uh, her, her, she's her pretty mom, she's
0: mentally quite quite tough you can see that <laughs> yeah
1: she's she's i mean she's she's right up there she she has all the abilities and and something like this will definitely help her to yeah. to move to you know back into the top ten and and uh, who knows who who knows i i think she's got the ability to move into the top five um with Absolutely, her skill level yeah. But this sort of stuff is, is, is all separate from, from the other coaching that's taking place with uh, uh, all the physical training and, and um, on-court on training and so forth. Um, this stuff will only help all the athletes that, um, that, that, uh, that use it
0: so if people uh if anyone's interested in this they they would just go to to the uh mental train the max uh mental certification is that i think i got i don't think i got that right
1: yeah so it's um <laughs> it's mental trainer certification dot com
0: mental trainer certification and they can find that uh i guess if you're on you're on facebook as well so that's probably in your profile uh, somewhere yeah yeah
1: so yeah if you, if you go to my my main website um which is just a landing page. There's a link there. It's called maximmentor.ca. Okay. So that's um, yeah, and uh, you know we encourage we encourage coaches to take this, and, and uh, anyone anyone who's interested in in adding another tool that's that's basically not not out there in in depth right now. I think it's going to be. Um, Pretty useful for all for all levels of players. Well,
0: the proof is in the pudding, buddy. I mean, uh, you got uh, Miguel playing, got him playing uh, to to a level to get him to the British Open, and still he's playing. Uh, he he played very well in the um, in the World Open there recently. So uh, yeah, he, yeah, he, he just had he, little he, uh, kind of fell off there against uh, Mohammed when he when it looked like it was going well. Well,
1: I, I'll tell you, um, I'll tell you what I found out. A little bit too late. Um, and uh, so he, he had designed another uh, screensaver for the World Open. Yeah. And um, I actually went to Bogota at, uh, two weeks, was a week, uh, about a week before the tournament. And I asked him to show it to me because he hadn't showed it to me before. And what he had done was he actually took a, a, a copy of the um, a screenshot of the women's trophy.
0: Oh, okay.
1: So, yeah. so when I caught not, that,
0: not by I, design.
1: No, but there's two trophies, right? There's <laughs> there's two different trophies, and they're very yeah. distinctive. One is clear, and one is kind of a cloudy, cloudy one. Yeah. And um, he had put the 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 women's trophy up on his screensaver. Okay. So as as a as a visualization, um, the the message that that is sending is not the right message to to uh, to the brain, and unfortunately, we caught it a bit late. I'm not saying that would have. That made all the difference but no, it does well, I it guess does something, definitely something help. like but that if
0: you're so uh, you know if the mental thing is such a bit ba- uh, if you believe in it so much I bet you that would throw you
1: yeah well I I, I think I think it definitely did did something um, you know yeah. unless we have unless we have some brain maps on and, and reading all of the
0: all the. That, 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 that could be something Joey and uh, the boys could, could get going on, on squash TV get the brain maps uh, going it while they're playing
1: yeah, we've we've talked about that. I mean, it's I mean, okay. It's a lot. It's a lot of contraption to. <laughs> yeah. We're we're fortunate just to, just to have that in a sitting position. Well,
0: Joe, uh, Joey dropped your name on on his podcast when when I when I interviewed him. He was. Uh, yes, yeah, so, yeah, I. Somehow you, you left a bit of an, an impression on him.
1: Well, those guys those guys talk a lot about the mental part of the game, so yeah, you know, oh, yeah. it's, it's it's very uh, it's very interesting to get their perspective and.
0: I mean, most, John. Most of, father, I mean, Jonah had to have been. I mean, he he was uh, one of the best when it came to to the mental warfare, all that stuff about the uh, the aesthetic um, intimidation that that he talked about a bit there. I mean, uh, stuff like that. It's not necessarily what you're doing, but it, it's a uh, it's a deep thinking uh, kind of stuff. Not, you know.
1: Yeah, I think what he was referring to actually is is uh, and I alluded to it um, earlier is that. Uh, these these guys do a lot of alpha behavior outside of the court. And Jonathan Power, Jonathan yeah. Power and Jah- Jahangir were, were absolute masters of this. Oh, They'd beat geez. you off the uh, outside of the court before you even got on. They they you know p- put all sorts of ideas in your mind that you weren't good enough and you you know you can never uh, match me with with fitness or skills or you know you never get my drop shot. They they do all sorts of things like that. They, yeah. Even. All things you never believe that are, that are that interesting, like, you know, letting somebody go ahead of them in, through a doorway or an yeah. elevator or picking up their bag or, you know, uh, yeah. picking up the check. Or, or, or no, I, know, that I noticed
0: that, uh, I mean, Mohammed El-Sherbagi, I met him briefly in Dubai when we were there and uh, a really nice guy, but I noticed that he had that bit of a sort of an alpha uh, approach to things as well. And, and it was very, it was very evident uh, um, with him too.
1: Oh yeah, and I teach that stuff and it's, it, it definitely works outside of the court and, and transfers into the court during, during the matches. Uh,
0: I just re- I remember back in the day, uh, back when Jonathan and, and Peter, their, their rivalry was just sort of taking off. It would have been uh, about 97 or 98. And I remember uh, Barrington Jonah uh, interviewing uh, JP before I think it was the Hong Kong Open final. And it was almost like, um, like a UFC uh, fighter interview. You know, it's not like nowadays are just so nice to each other. But power was like, yeah, it's going to be, it's just going to be all shots today. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, well, again, it's
1: just, he's just pouring all sorts of information in, into his opponent's mind.
0: Yeah.
1: And uh, well, you he know, had
0: that going in such a big them. way back then, didn't he? Uh,
1: but he had the talent the to back d- it up.
0: No, oh, yeah. yeah.
1: Absolutely. So yeah, that, I mean, he's one of those guys like like John McEnroe. So they back themselves into a corner, but then they have to back it up, right? They have to produce the goods at that point. So some yeah. there's some some types of uh, characters that that actually feed off of that kind of negative energy. Yeah. Um, and others, most most people don't, but uh, there are some that that uh, that do um, flourish in that environment. Let's say. <laughs>
0: yeah but on some occasions that got the better of them too so
1: yes yes it it, it works both ways i mean the yeah. belief system is is very deep and, and very ingrained uh, it's um you know the human brain's been the current our current human brain has been around for the last hundred thousand years or so and it hasn't really changed that much so um although we try to figure it out it's it's still a it's, there's still a lot to learn so i lo- i love the I love nice. the subject
0: Absolutely. Well, Max, I, I think we're, we're we're starting another podcast here, and I'd love to, <laughs> I'd love to do it again. Uh, you know, maybe maybe a few sure. months uh, down the road, uh, have you back on, and uh, we can talk some more about this kind of stuff. But uh, really appreciate uh, you, Max, and uh, want to wish you all the best you and Miguel and the other uh, other I guess young Colombians you might be working with, and uh, all the best in Cartagena. And uh, I got that pronunciation right. You got it right this time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well done. It took me 10 times. And uh, yeah, let, let's do it again soon, man.
1: Thanks a lot, Jerry. Have a great day. Cheers, Thanks buddy. for listening, Thanks everyone. Again. Okay.
0: Bye-bye. Again, uh, thanks, Max, for, for doing that. Lots of great stuff there on the mental aspect of the game and uh, also where uh, where Max uh, came from in terms of uh, his squash story. For, for us Canadians, uh, w- we know him quite well, but uh, uh, for many of you who may have only just gotten to, to know who he is through uh, Miguel, his relationship with Miguel, well, he does have... Uh, quite a prolific uh, Canadian squash experience. So, uh, yes, thanks again, Max, for that, and I'd love to have him back on to talk a, a bit more in depth about uh, a lot of the topics that we sort of covered uh, today. And uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, it's been uh, been a great few months. We've had some good, uh, good episodes, and we have many more to come. Uh, so stay tuned for those. Enjoy your squash, and uh, have a great day. Goodbye now.